Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The, the woman in the film had lymphoma, and she had terminal lymphoma. She had had traditional therapy of chemo, and um, two months later, it had come back into both lungs and her breast, which is a very bad prognosis to have that so quickly. And then she got CAR T cells and stem cells at City of Hope here in Los Angeles. And um, she had a miraculous recovery. It's been uh, two and a half years now, and she's cancer-free. Welcome back to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. As always, starting off with a huge thank you for continuing to listen along. Uh, it's been just a great joy to bring you this show on a regular basis over this last year, coming in through the COVID crisis and the election and all the madness that has ensued. It's December 9th, 2020, and we are winding down, and one cannot help but feel hopeful that 2021 will bring us to a brighter future. And part of that has to do with this episode of Look Up. I had a conversation with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Joe Gantz, whose most recent film, Ending Disease, highlights the radical impact that transformative new medical therapy called CAR-T therapy or stem cell therapy can have on not only treating previously untreatable disease, but also curing chronic illnesses like cancer and HIV. The Ending Disease documentary series follows patients and their doctors in the first generation of FDA-approved clinical trials for stem cell, CAR T-cell, and antibody therapies. And Joe was granted unprecedented access to these trials and the families that were undergoing them. He and I discuss his journey to make this film, what he learned and what surprised him the most, and the stories that touched him from working with these families. Joe also educates me about the stigma around stem cell therapy and the pharmaceutical industry's unwillingness to support some of these early trials. We've then finished the show chatting about one of my favorite topics, the new media landscape, and Joe's experience as a social awareness documentarian in the new streaming environment dominated by the likes of Netflix and Amazon and others. Super interesting conversation. I learned a ton. And I just can't help but, as I mentioned earlier, be excited for what the future can bring. Uh, watching this documentary series is shown me that we are on the brink of some incredible progress in medicine and other fields. And so I hope you'll check it out. You can purchase a ticket at www.endingdisease.com. Uh, if you're interested, there's links in the show notes for further education as always. And that's it for me. I hope you all are having a great end to the year. Uh, I'll probably come back with another episode or two before I take off for the holidays. But, um, yeah, that's it. Enjoy. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Uh, and also appreciate you making uh, this docu-series, Ending Disease. Um, I wanted to start with just... What led you to the decision to create this documentary or docu-series? So um, about 20 years ago, President Bush outlawed stem cell research or the most important parts of stem cell research. And then um, there were parents in California whose kids had type 1 diabetes. And there were kids, uh, well, people who their parents had Alzheimer's, and they knew that stem cell research was the best chance for a cure. So uh, they got together and put a ballot measure on the ballot in 16 years ago, 
and it was Prop 71, and it would devote $3 billion to stem cell research. Mm. And it was, it was touted that it was going to be all focused on getting cures to diseases. And so that passed, and uh, California became the center of stem cell research in the United States. And about five years ago, I began asking myself, you know, was that effective? And were these cures really materializing? So I started this project. And at first, I was interviewing uh, a number of scientists. I actually interviewed about three dozen different scientists working on different diseases. And I asked them, you know, because I knew a lot of them had clinical trials in progress for stem cell or regenerative medicine therapies. I said, can I follow your clinical trial? And they all said, no. They said that, you know, th there's always a university involved. There's uh, a pharmaceutical company involved. And uh, there's a hospital involved. And they won't go for that. So uh, after a while, I, I found one guy, uh, the one who was the the scientist for Rosie, who's blind. Um, and I said to him, can I follow your trial? And he said, well, here's the name of someone in my trial. And he gave me Rosie's name and email, and I emailed her. And I asked if I could follow her. And she said yes. And uh, I followed her for about six months and made a trailer. And then I showed it to all the different scientists. And they, uh, one by one, agreed to let me follow their clinical trial in progress. And I think the reason they did that and took a chance was because they know that even today, there's a lot of folks who are trying to undermine stem cell research and regenerative medicine. Even the Trump administration with Pence, and Pence actually outlawed it in the state of uh, Indiana when he was governor. And so they've been trying to undermine it. Uh, and so I think that they felt that it would be, you know, positive to see uh, what these clinical trials are actually achieving. Yeah. Wow. So it's been it's been quite a journey. It's been a five five year journey now in the making of this. Yes, it's been a long process, and I raised the money from for the project through donations, tax deductible donations. So you have two jobs: one's making the film, one's raising the funds. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like that's always the job, no matter what you're doing. There's, there's always, whenever you have a project to do, there's always the fundraising element of it. It's, uh, it's the un, unspoken <laughs> side, more difficult side too. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's always good to team up. Sometimes there's these, uh, these folks that are just like pros at fundraising. It's good to find, find them so you can focus on your artistic, you know, on the creative path and telling the story. We'll send them my way. Those pros <laughs> <laughs> for the for the next one. We could we could chat offline, uh, but I guess for for the listeners, you know, you used you used a couple of phrases there. Um, the first was stem cells, and so would love to understand kind of at a core what stem cells are uh, and how they can be used. The second was regenerative therapy, which it sounds like is stem cell therapy, but maybe a subset of that. Well, stem cell is the subset of regenerative therapy. Okay. Regenerative therapy uses the body's own, uh, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'll just, it's explained better by the scientists in the film, but mm -hmm. regenerative therapies use the body's own workings and, and uh, ways of dealing with diseases to fight disease and to regenerate um, systems and even organs. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's actually fundamentally changing medicine from a uh, lifetime of treatments to one-time cures. All regenerative therapies are essentially one-time cures. So um, if you get a stem cell uh, transplant to fight cancer, um, it will stay in your body and it will, if the cancer comes back, it will attack it. And the same is true of CAR T cells. CAR T cells are T cells which fight, uh, you know, infections and, and uh, if you get anything that your body can fight off, uh, that's what T cells do, but they, they can train them now to fight cancers and other diseases. So um, it's fundamentally changing medicine. And over the course of the next 
five to 10 years, I think we'll look back at the medicine that's being practiced today and will seem primitive by comparison. There won't be chemo, there won't be radiation, and there'll be much fewer operations and it'll be less toxic mm-hmm. and less expensive and curative. And so what, I mean, it's crazy because you mentioned George W. Bush and he's in the opening of, of, the, docu, of the docu-series. I mean, it's been... 20 odd years, right, since this this technology has has really been pronounced. And there's there's always from the beginning been this stigma around it, right? And I guess why why is there such a stigma that's developed around stem cell therapy? Well, the stigma is essentially that um, it it uh, often in the beginning used fetal or embryonic tissue. Um, And the Catholic Church has a problem with that. Um, It now, you now the therapies are much less apt to use that. Um, We followed 10 different clinical trials in the in the film for brain cancer, breast cancer, leukemia, lymphoma, for HIV, for a broken spinal cord, for uh, SCID, which is a baby born without an immune system and eye disease. And uh, almost very few of those used any embryonic tissue. Um, So it's less and less common. And often now they're using the stem cells from the patient's own body. But for developing these new cures, um, historically and still sometimes now, they use fetal or embryonic tissue. That's the controversy. But, you know, there's fetal or embryonic tissue uh, that was used for the polio vaccine. Um, and, uh, you know, President Trump took that, that special um, medication. For COVID-19, yeah. For COVID-19. and that Regeneron. Yeah, and that used uh, fetal tissue or embryonic tissue. I don't know which one. So, oh, that's interesting. How did, how did they dance around that one? They gave it yeah. to him. And, and in fact, you know, that these things are not illegal in the sense that it's explained also better in the film, but you have rules for when someone dies to use their tissue. And they have a set of rules for using tissue uh, from a fetus, which is nobody can make a profit. Um, and the, the, the patient, the woman, is never asked until after the procedure uh, to, if she wants to do it so that she, she can never be pressured or anything. And so, um, and the embryonic tissue comes from IVF. So it's couples who have made extra embryos and are not going to use them and they're just going to be incinerated if they're not used. And uh, Ryan in the film, who Ryan is the one who broke his spine and he basically, I mean, I don't want to ruin it for listeners, but he basically could only shrug his shoulders, but it was paralyzed from, yeah, from the shoulders down. He was a quadriplegic. And uh, that actually was one of the stem cell lines that was okayed by Bush. So Bush okayed certain stem cell lines. And so this was made from embryonic tissue and the same one embryo has been used for 20 years. And on many, many patients, it can be used for years and years more. And that's one embryo that otherwise would be incinerated if it wasn't, if it wasn't used for science. Unreal. And this, is, and, and this has been the root cause to the kind of delay in the, I guess, mass production of these types of treatments. Yes. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of controversy around you know, whether there should be abortions or not. But in a way, this is, you know, different because if there is already abortion, does does that tissue get thrown out, incinerated, or is that possible to save a life? You you see, uh, you know, how these stem cell therapies can change the life of a patient and their family. Uh, When you have a a debilitating disease, you and your family is just absorbed with that. If you have, and you have a window of 
of being able, a window of opportunity to be able to treat that disease. And if it's, there's not a treatment during that time, then, you know, you're out of luck. Yeah, I thought that was one of the beautiful things about the series was how it really tells the story from the family's perspective. And I mean, just every story was was not only just unique because we are all unique, but for also each one kind of had a different um, a different problem that was being solved. And so the question that came to mind for me is like, because you know, the title of the documentary is Ending Disease, is is this treatment kind of the holy grail of medicine? I mean, you're talking about HIV, um, paralysis, cancer, blindness from macular, macular degeneration. Retinitis you know, pigmentosa, actually. Retinitis. Oh, my dad's going to be so pissed at me for this one. He's, he's an ophthalmologist, so we'll have, to, <laughs> we'll have to... I won't edit it out. We'll keep it in. But still, dad, sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, is this, is this the holy grail of medicine? Well, um, I think this is certainly a fundamental change in medicine that is going to change medicine um, profoundly uh, to be curative and one-time cures. And it's going to not only change medicine, but it's going to change the economics of medicine. Uh, Once it becomes the norm, it's going to bring down the cost of medicine tremendously. And... uh, it's going to cure a tremendous amount of diseases. Now, in California, this was passed 16 years ago, and it devoted $3 billion to stem cell research. It was on the ballot this November for another $5.5 billion. And everyone said, well, how many cures have come about for, for, from 16 years ago? Yeah. But the thing is that even though it is miraculous, these stem cell therapies, these CAR T cell therapies, the potential to cure disease is miraculous. It takes 15 years to get through a clinical trial on average. There's three phases. There's phase one, which is about seeing if it's safe. There's phase two to see what the proper dosage is. And phase three to uh, try it out on a a large number of people so you really know that it works and it doesn't cause problems. And to go through those three phases, on average, it takes 15 years. The first four years uh, of, the, of this uh, CIRM, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, that was sponsored with the $3 billion, was tied up in court. So the thing about my film is it follows these clinical trials in progress, and you get to see behind the curtain that, yes, this is working. This is working extremely well. It's not perfect. It's not working in every case as it needs to, but medicine goes, you know, by fits and starts. And some of these trials work completely. Some of them worked encouragingly, but not like you'd want them to work in the final uh, phase of it. Um, So there's still work to do, and it doesn't happen that quickly because they need to be very, very careful and make sure it's all dress um, and it's giving you what what it promises. And but I mean, here here we are in in a in a post COVID nineteen world, and it seems like these timelines are getting massively con- condensed, right? Like we've got I I don't know what the exact numbers are, but we we've gotten to potentially a vaccine within a year, whereas you know historically it would have taken. 10 years, five years, 15 years. I, I'm, I'm not a doctor, you know, I'm, I'll have to pull the stats. It does not take that long because the technology has been there and they've set it up. I, I do think a flu vaccine took two to three years on average and they brought it down to one, but don't quote me on that. But here's the thing, uh, your dad's an ophthalmologist. Um, diseases of the central nervous system, like blindness um, and like a broken spinal cord, there was no there was no therapy for. It. I mean, you could do physical therapy, you could try to get some some slight improvement, but basically, through all of human history, there was no there was no not only no cure, but there was barely any therapy to improve it. Mm. And now, uh, you see the people. Uh, we followed two young men who broke their necks and were quadriplegic, 
they had tremendous success. Uh, I won't give it away, but they had tremendous success. And then we had this woman that was blind and got quite a bit of improvement. And that's in, in diseases that there was no therapy that was successful. And then you have cancers, and uh, they're making tremendous progress on things like cancer. And, uh, you know, they're doing it one at a time. And I think they're going to be very successful. But it's also a whole range of diseases that will be able to be treated with regenerative medicine. Diabetes, sickle cell anemia, HIV, uh, just a whole host of different diseases. Yeah, it's fascinating how, how broad the use cases are. I am um, actually, to, to your point, one of the doctors in, in the field mentioned, you know, thousands of years humans have understood paralysis, but not been able to, to find anything remotely near a cure. And now here we are, and, you know, these two patients, at least that you show in the film, make, make massive strides. So it's, it's really encouraging to watch that. And that doctor, when he did his first operation, using the same cell line, I think, uh, it was 15, 20 years ago when he did his first operation. Um, he had uh, death threats because he was using stem cells. And uh, they, they put a guard to guard his house and guard the, the uh, operating room where he was operating. So, um, you know, you, you have to ask yourself why something that has so much potential to help cure diseases that are going to save the lives of millions of people. Uh, over the next decade, I, I would say that millions of people are going to be, uh, have their lives profoundly changed by stem cell research and regenerative medicine. Uh, yet, it's, it's, with a certain subset of this country, it's tremendously controversial. And speaking of that controversy, one one. Um, thing I was very surprised by was uh, I think it was Rose, the woman who was was blind. Um, the process of receiving the stem cells. I mean, it was it was literally just like it was like it was like taking a blood test. It was just over in in a second for her at least. It was they just injected direct, her, yeah, directly into her eye. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's terrifying for for some people with needles, and for me in particular. But it was just like it was so fast. Right. And, you know, this, I, when I think of, I think like the stigma around stem cells is it seems like this for many people, they imagine this like Frankenstein effect, right? Like maybe for some, it's like this, like, oh, you're messing with nature or, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, manipulating life in a way that could have some consequences. And we're all, you know, we're all in this kind of like, a post-apocalyptic type mentality now. So it's like, what's next? Is it going to be zombies running around from stem cells or something? But it's just... It's essentially using the body's own defenses that are there and trying to use that way of the body functioning normally to make it more effective in fighting diseases. Uh, uh, although there's much more to it. But it, to me... It's not, uh, it's not uh, Frankenstein. It's actually, it's, it's kind of the logical conclusion of, of medicine to use the body's own way of creating stem cells or create everything in our bodies. You know, every organ has a stem cell, our blood system, our brain, every has, it has its own uh, stem cell as cancer has a stem cell in our body. So um, I think it's it's actually a very natural way uh, that we've developed to to deal with disease. It's fun. It's funny how it's come. You know, it's come full circle in that way. Western medicine. You know, it's it's gotten back to to the root. That's that's interesting. Um, I guess you you mentioned a couple of things that I want to circle back to. So uh, one is care T. Can you describe like what? How is CAR T an evolution of the stem cell therapies that were um, done in the past? And maybe it's you know it's too technical, but I'm just curious. Yeah, so um, the film follows uh, stem cell therapies and CAR T cells, C A R dash T, and it's essentially I gave it a I gave it a rebrand. <laughs> it's essentially taking T cells which are the cells in your body that fight off disease or fight off infection, and um, 
the way the doctor, the scientist in the film, Dr. Foreman, talks about it, he says that, that they're naturally, they believe they naturally do fight cancers. But when you get cancer, obviously something's going wrong and it's not being effective. Um, so they have developed ways to take these cells and program them to uh, attack certain types of cancer. So each T cell is then programmed to attack a certain specific type of cancer. So they're developing these one at a time. The, the woman in the film had lymphoma and she had terminal lymphoma. Mm -hmm. She had had traditional therapy of chemo. And um, two months later, it had come back into both lungs and her breast, which is a very bad prognosis to have that so quickly. And then she got CAR T cells and stem cells at City of Hope here in Los Angeles. And um, she had a miraculous recovery. It's been uh, two and a half years now, and she's cancer-free. And she was also she was also undergoing kind of more traditional treatments for cancer as well, like the, the chemo? Well, she did uh, chemo first, mm. the, the traditional across the board. And then, uh, well, when they do uh, stem cell and CAR T cell, they did uh, use some chemo to get rid of her blood system so they could give her a new blood system with the, with the uh, CAR T cells and the stem cells. So it wasn't chemo the same way she had it before. And once again, I'm not the perfect person to explain this, but yeah. she did have some chemo um, in that process. And so speaking of chemo, you had one of my favorite characters uh, was was this gentleman, uh, Dr. Irv Weissman uh, from Stanford. And so he made some really kind of striking points about the state of medicine and uh, the pharmaceutical industry, which I think was an important one uh, that I wanted to touch on here, where our current system, and I've spoken a lot about this on the show in the past um, with other guests and how many of our issues kind of tie back to the way that incentives are structured in our our socioeconomic and, and political realm. And, you know, the incentives for pharma are, of course, to maximize shareholders for uh, profit for shareholders. That's just, you know, the way that they are built into the current system that we have. And Weissman kind of points out that if your number one incentive is profit maximization and your number two incentive is, is cure, to cure your patients, then what you end up with are profit maximizing chronic um, therapies. Uh, rather than a one-time curative therapy like um, like CAR T, um, what do you what do you think about that statement and the the role that pharma might play in in all of this? Well, Irv Weissman is the father of stem cell research. He's developed so many different aspects of this, uh, and he was the first to isolate. Um, stem cells in mice, the first to isolate stem cells in humans, and um, he's, he's developed a way to put a human immune system in a mouse. He's, a, he's an amazing person, but he's also someone with all his background and all his credentials who has had a very frustrating time uh, over the years because he developed a potential cure using stem cells for breast cancer that has metastasized. So there are ways to treat breast cancer, but once it metastasizes, meaning it spreads throughout the body, uh, is uncurable, incurable. I mean, you can prolong life, but it's un incurable. And he has come, he came up with a, a cure using purified stem cells, and he explains it in the film. And he did a trial uh, it was a first phase trial, so there was only 15 or 30 women uh, in the trial. And um, they gave them this, these purified stem cells. And halfway through the trial, the pharmaceutical company pulled the plug. Um, I think maybe there was 30 women in the trial, and they had only treated 15 or something like that. And he went back to see years later. He was very frustrated by that. And he suspected that the reason they did it is because 
you know, like as you mentioned, they're disincentivized to to come up with a one-time cure. They're much more make much more money uh, by you know treating a disease over time, over a lifetime. So uh, he went back and he found the women in the trial, and he found that uh, a third of them had been cured, and a uh, second third had gained ten more additional <laughs> years of life than the median. And um, and what was the reason that he was given for the cancellation of the of the trial? Um, I, I think the reason that they gave him was not the real reason. That it was just some excuse they they gave him. But um, he had that experience, and then also um, this uh, other scientist, Mike McCune, who's in the film with HIV. They had uh, come up with a potential cure of HIV, and he had a conversation with a pharmaceutical company that just told him uh, flat out that, um, you know, we can make this much by treating it over a lifetime and this much with your cure, and they declined to to go forward with this trial. So um, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies have not come up with, you know, wonderful medications that are life-saving, but as you said, um, their their main incentive is to make profit for the shareholders, and that can't be the main incentive. The main incentive has to be to maximize health and make people's lives better and live longer. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining, as, we, as we're speaking about this, I'm imagining a system where you could almost structure like um, like a lottery payout, right, for a pharma company that found a cure to something rather than a stream of income over a period of time or multiple streams of income. So you could set up these like individual entities with the sole purpose of finding a cure and a massive outsized lottery payout if that happens, just like this one-time payment. Now, who would pay that? That's, that's a, up for a debate. Um, but I, I feel like that model might be more aligned with the idea of like, hey, you're, you're trying to actually cure something because it's just weird to think that a company who's, you know, creates a bureaucracy and a, a class of managers and has hundreds or thousands of employees, you know, especially a lot of these pharma companies, they, they thrive off of kind of one or two um, treatments or drugs that they've created that become kind of the lifeblood of the company while they R&D other things that it would, the company would cease to exist if they actually did their job. It's like a weird thing. It's like a scorpion. <laughs> well, uh, these, these ballot measures in California, mm. the one 16 years ago and the one in November, just this last November 3rd that passed, uh, they created this entity called the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. And the, you know, they raised three, $3 billion the first time, $5.5 billion this time, and that's going to create cures. And what happens is, with, with CIRM, is that they give out grants to scientists, not only in California, across the country, but mainly in California, but across the country, to develop these cures. And what happens is, because this entity is giving them the money to get past phase one, and get into phase two before a pharmaceutical company gets involved, it's like much more difficult, or I would say impossible, for the pharma company to shut it down. In other words, you can shut it down in phase one and say, it's not working, we want to do something else. For X, Y, Z reasons. Which could be because you want to make more money with a drug that that is not a one-time cure, or who knows what reason. When you get it to the point that it's in phase two and you have results and you can see that it's working, then a pharmaceutical company can come in and spend the money to now test it on 600 or 6,000 different people at five different institutions around the world. And that's expensive. And then they invest in that, but they can't shut it down because it's proven that it's working. And that's one of the most beautiful aspects of this. California Institute of Regenerative Medicine is that it gets it to the point where um, 
it can't be undermined by pharma. Yeah, it's a super compelling um, allocation of of capital, at least for the state of California, um, which has its own problems of capital allocation. Uh, even even beyond that, um, the, the they wrote into the bylaws that if it is successful, more part of the money from the the drug or the therapy that it creates will we'll go back to when the government gives a grant, it doesn't have that. So this could be self-financing um, in ten years or so. Yeah, it's a no, it's a novel model. I'm going to look into that more for sure. I I, I noticed that um, there's it, they mentioned there are only 42 trials ongoing right now with CAR T therapy, or you mentioned this in the film. Um, around then there was 42. There's now 90. Okay, great. That's I was actually curious because you know. Standalone, it seems so few, but I don't actually know how that compares to, you know, to to other tr- experimental treatments, you know, that are out there. Like, is forty two a large number? Forty two seems to be a small number. You know, I'm not exactly sure. But have have you looked into that further? Well, I know that I was, as I said, when we when I started, I interviewed people that were working on a whole host of different diseases, um, epilepsy, diabetes. Um, you know, uh, heart disease. And a lot of them had not gotten to the point yet where they could start a clinical trial. Um, Because, you know, just to start a clinical trial, you have to prove a number of things, the hurdles to get over. So it takes a number of years to get approved to start, and then it takes about 15 years to get through the clinical trial. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to get one of these clinical trials through all the phases and get something approved. But in this case, it's so valuable when you, when you get an actual cure to something that, you know, is affecting millions of people. Yeah. Uh, it's very powerful. What was, what was one in the, in the process of making this film? What was, what was one thing that really surprised you? Um, well, I think in the beginning, the whole concept kind of surprised the hell out of me. That I mean, I went at this, you know, not even that aware of what stem cell research and regenerative medicine was. And when you start talking to the scientists and they say the potential of this to, you know, cure all these diseases and then you meet the people going through the trials and they're desperate, you know, they're behind um, Ryan and Lucas are paralyzed from the neck down. Um, Ellen and uh, Cheryl have terminal cancer. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot at stake there. You know, there, you, you, when you hear about it in the abstract, it's one thing to meet the people and not only meet the people, you meet their husband, their wife, their kids. You know, the kids of these folks often have dealt with this since they were babies. You know, the, their parent has had to deal with this since they were babies. So uh, it, it's surprising to hear the potential. And then as you see that it's working, uh, it, it's just uh, it's just an amazing, uplifting situation. Yeah, and I found that the the fam the the families were just it was so moving, you know, just being with them through through this process. I mean, how was that for you? How was that experience of really like? I mean, this is this is literal life and death for these people, and you're and and they're you know forget about the the trials they're welcoming you in into their process, right? Into this this process that's just so emotionally charged. I mean, how do you feel as as a as a steward of their story, carrying that forward into this film? Well, I certainly feel uh, I feel very indebted to them to allow me to be a part of these vulnerable moments with their entire family, including their kids, and trusting me to be a part of it. I mean, it's not in the film, but there were moments. Um, because we followed a number of trials and there were moments where the doctors were kind of saying, we don't want you there. 
And the patients were saying, no, they're with me, they're coming. And uh, I, I developed, you know, strong relationships with the, the, these patients, their, their husbands or wives and their kids. I mean, I spent time around the kids. I really uh, like talking to kids, hanging out with kids and kids are very, you know, open in certain ways that it's moving. And mm-hmm. so the, the, it was, uh, you certainly come into this editing to, uh, with, with a, you know, knowing that you have an obligation to make something that uh, comes up to the level of, of the trust they've given you and also the potential of this field, which is enormous. So uh, you want to do that. I, I should say that right as I finished editing this film, I found out I had bladder cancer. And I found that out, and um, that was a shock. But it also allowed me to see medicine from their perspective as a patient. And not only that, I was, I, I went to uh, City of Hope Cancer Hospital, which is where I had filmed hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so um, I'm doing well. I'm feeling good. And um, but it was a very scary time. And my one David who's the older son, he edited this film with me. And then when I found out that I had cancer, which was towards the end, he took over and just finished it up. And that was uh, great to have him to take care of that. And then there's four parts to this series. And, uh, you know, you're always running out of money and you you want to put the money towards, you know, making sure that things move forward. And so there was someone who was supposed to do the music He's done many, many documentary films. He did my last film. He sort of is a friend. And I said, can you just, uh, you know, I've paid you to do the first two episodes. Can you just do the last two? I can't afford to pay you yet, but I'll pay you, you know, when I finish the film. And he said, no, I don't think I should do that. It might be bad for our friendship. I called my younger son as he was coming home from college after his junior year. And he's a a composing major. And I said, Nathan, I have a job for you over the summer if you're up for it. And he'd never done anything like this, but he did the last two episodes, the music, the composing. And I think that, in my opinion, the last two episodes well done. are better than the first two episodes. I can't believe your friend said that. That's such a, that's such a drag. Um, I guess maybe he wouldn't be able to get over the, the resentment of the lack of the quid pro quo there. I, maybe that's some kind of self-awareness, but... Man, um, well, he told me wow. business for a long time, and you never can tell when a documentary film is not going to sell, and it might never sell. And, and he didn't want to put himself out. He's got tons of work. The guy's very much in demand. So uh, it worked out well because Nathan did a great job, and um, I've made his film. I finished the second film I was working on at the same time. Um, right after that, it's a film on climate change called "The Race to Save the World." And uh, Nathan did the sound for that film, and my other son edited that completely without me. So that cool. was good. And how are, how are you doing with the bladder cancer? Um, is it in remission or? Yes. Um, so there are there there are high grade and low grade. And at first we thought it was high grade, which is very can spread very easily and is quite dangerous. And then after uh, about six months of thinking it was high grade, it turned out to be low grade, which is um, much more treatable and easier to keep under control. And so um, that's what we've been doing. We, I had to go through, you know, about uh, nine months of therapy and a year and a half of wearing a stent in my ureter, which was painful. But I'm, yeah. I'm all good now. That's great to hear. I'm so happy to hear that. I um I was going to ask you if this, you know, if this struck something felt that this might have struck closer to home. Um, if you ever, you know, dealt with this sort of situation. Um, because it, it reads like that in the film a little bit as well. Um, like truly like the eye of the families, you know, like the 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 feelings around it. Um 
So, so one one thing I wanted to uh, to touch on is this is this is quite different than than the previous work that you've done. No, uh, with with Taxi Cab, you you were involved with Taxi Cab Confessions. That was that was a cool show as well because that was like getting into kind of like the depths of humanity, like and just what. Pe- I by the way, I used to love that show, so I'm a huge fan of your work. I would like watch that late night as like a teenager, or like preteen. It was the only thing that was on HBO or something at that time. But I mean, how how, how long ago was that? We started that in '95, and we did it for 15 years. Um, first episode won an Emmy, and. Uh, was nominated the next two years and and um to make that show i was in a follow vehicle i could see and hear everything going on in the cab and i could talk to the passengers through a wireless earpiece in the driver's ear so i would ask the questions that oh no way that was you asking the questions yeah um but then uh, we made television for years and some film but i thought Television was getting dumber and dumber, in my opinion. And in the early years, I was doing documentary television, and they pretty much left me alone because they didn't understand it. And then when reality television came along, they thought they understood it uh, and wanted me to do that. But I think documentary is the opposite of reality television. Can you lean into that a little bit? Well, um, in documentary television... I choose my subjects and then I just let it unfold and I and I just follow them like a fly on the wall and and uh, let the story happen organically and then weave it together in the uh, editing but you know reality television is all set up contrived they just they uh, you know get people drunk and then they try to have them argue and substitute arguing for story and I, I don't say it's all like that but I wasn't not interested so about 10 years ago, I decided that I only wanted to make social action documentaries. And my brother and I made uh, a documentary for H- with HBO called uh, American Winter on the economic downturn and families follow- falling from middle class into poverty. And, uh, and then my brother had had enough of, you know, trying to make social action documentaries. It, it's a hard road challenging yeah for sure so i went on and did this one and then i we just finished the one on climate change do you feel that and and with this documentary so it it releases on in three days correct yes it's going to be a virtual theatrical release and people can get their tickets uh, that benefit different theaters around the country that's beautiful especially in these times when theaters are really struggling do you um do you feel that like the rise of these streaming platforms now that we're getting more into kind of like the media space, do you feel that the rise of these streaming platforms has been a boon for social justice documentaries or um, social awareness documentaries or yeah, I'm just going to drop the, the second half of that question. Cause I, I don't want to insert my own opinion there. No, I don't think they have been a boon at all. Uh, now I should say that my brother and I, when we were, working over the years, we felt that we wanted to start a platform that would be good for filmmakers. Um, It was not a platform where you just throw your work up there. It was curated, and it was called Crushed Planet. We we worked on it for 15 years. We launched it about three times, put a lot of our personal money into it, and the idea was that the, the filmmaker would own their own, would own all their productions. It would be a very innovative, very very creative, and um, allow people to do really challenging work. Uh, we never had the money to launch it right, and, and it never happened. And just as an example why things are not working, uh, you've seen this, this series. It is powerful. It's groundbreaking. It's going to change medicine, which is going to affect millions of lives. It's dramatic. There's people with their, their eyesight on their line, their ability to move on the line. Their life is on the line, and yet I showed it to um, uh, Netflix, and they weren't interested. I couldn't get an appointment to show it to Apple because I didn't have an agent anymore. I got rid of my agent mm. years ago, and uh, and so you know the idea that this film was not picked up by one of those big streaming s- services. I mean, what what 
what could be more far-reaching than medicine fundamentally changing? And in fact, you know, that's going to affect every family, every family totally. around the world. <laughs> totally. Well, it's like now there, it feels like so many more of the, of the documentaries on these platforms are kind of in-house productions. And there's, I, I constantly think about the way that the media is the message. And like, I, I forget who said that, but basically like whatever we view through Netflix has the Netflix tint on it. And so, you know, the reason I, one of the reasons I started this podcast was I was, I was this, one of the subjects of a documentary about a failed music festival, which, you know, was a highly watched documentary on Netflix when it was completely meaningless relative to, to this work, you know, but, you know, and, and hats off to Chris Smith, the director, cause he's, he's an incredible storyteller. I'm not trying to ding him, but I just think that the taint of it is more like, it's, it's more dramatic, like it's dramatized, right? And, and dramatized in a way that is that is like closer to the reality television that you're speaking of, you know? And, and so I, I, I feel like even, even like, even a film that has like a powerful message, it's, there's a format. Like every, every time you do a specific format on LinkedIn, you know, it's going to get 10,000 views on LinkedIn versus a post that might be deeper and have more impact and meaning, but it doesn't follow the algorithm, you know, and therefore it's not going to get the reach. And they know what's within what's within the algorithm, you know, very quickly. And whether or not they're going to work with someone that's going to mold it to the algorithm, in order in order to get a distribution, right? Well, I think there's a similarity between the the pharmaceutical companies being money driven. The pharmaceutical companies do do drugs that are far reaching and save lives, but then they also do they're they're financially driven, so they they're not purists. And they would, in the case of Irv's clinical trial, they overlook something that could save tens of thousands of lives. Um, I think the, the platforms that are streaming media are big corporations, and they're the same thing. They're all, they're, you know, traded companies that are financially driven, and they don't care about whether a, a uh, film or documentary is going to be... Uh, impactful uh in the bigger picture and you know they're they're following their algorithms and and i have no problem with you know trying to maximize the entertainment value of of productions i think who you know there's no problem with that but i think there are projects that you have to take a leap of faith with like this uh because you know that uh people will benefit from hearing about this and in that process, like if you brought them, when you brought them the early cut, would they have then said, okay, we green light, the, let's say they said, okay, Netflix, green light, then you have a much larger budget to work with. So then you would have brought on your friend for the music and, you know, and, and all that, or, or do they, do they, do they boost the budget for the creator as well? Well, I, I, I haven't worked with them, so I can't really tell you. I worked mm -hmm. with HBO for many years and, you know, that was a lot more comfortable than working on your own in the sense that you did have budgets to work with that you could hire, uh, you know, people to do the different jobs that would make things work smoother. Um, I, you know, I, I see Netflix offer uh, projects to uh, many well-known people and they almost don't care what it is. They're so, you know, certain that that name will, will create interest. Um, but I, I don't. I think something that just the fact that you have to come in with an agent. Um, there's something undemocratic about that. There can be someone who does some really good work, but the agent wants to work with someone that's already successful. Well, they're not democracies. You know, that's not how they're structured. No, they're not <laughs> structured. But um, I think that uh, there's a place for something like the platform that I was trying to to set up for many years. Well, it's a necessary, you know, it's funny because I've spoken to friends about this. There's a necessary platform that could kind of like boost the artistic, um, independent film, also, you know, the documentary landscape. But it's it's like Netflix works, Amazon works because they have such a broad, such a wide array, right? Like they just have like a huge catalog and people just want, you know, the long tail of all these things. And then occasionally you might sneak like an impactful film in, in, into one of these platforms. But the, the highly curated stuff, it's like, 
what is that worth on a monthly subscription basis to to the average person? And you know, is there a model where maybe if Netflix is nine ninety nine, maybe this is ninety nine ninety nine because it's like it's art, you know, and it's 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 um, impactful storytelling. And there's there's maybe a smaller customer base. Maybe it's like one tenth the size of the customer base, but they're willing to pay ten times as much. Well, we didn't want to charge ten times as much. Um, we we probably would have charged a similar amount, but had uh, ten times fewer things yeah. to choose from. Um, and uh, the the majority of the of the money would go to the filmmaker directly. That's the way we set it up. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's a it's a fascinating idea. I I also I worry like many things in in you know this kind of pandemic era. It's like you know small business owners, right? Small restaurateurs, like those things are, are those folks can't stay open, need another stimulus package. You know the large restaurant chains are doing just fine. You know delivery service doing just fine, and um, I think about that in the context of kind of film and the the types of theaters that you're supporting through the launch of this release, you know, they're, they're not going to be the ones that survive. It's going to be maybe, you know, the ones that come out of this are going to be like AMC Lowe's, right? Who, who they just have the, they have the cash, they have the ability to tap capital markets in a way that, you know, can get them through a period like this when film comes back. But then where do the independent filmmakers go? right after this. And that's, that's a concern that I definitely have. Well, you know, I, I think that uh, the whole reason we put together Crush Planet originally was that we wanted to give the filmmaker an incentive to do really creative, challenging work and uh, make it so that they could monetize that and they could retain the rights. Because, you know, once you give your film to uh, any of these platforms, you don't have the right to it. It's, mm. I mean, that's it. So I think that, you know, it's just like someone has a house and they grow up and they die, they give their house to their kids. I think that if you're a filmmaker and you make three or four or five, six films over your lifetime, you know, you should be able to retain the right to that. I mean, people should be able to hold on to that and, and you know, if people, if a platform shows it, uh, they can, you know, pay for two years, five years, seven years, whatever. But now they they just take it. Yeah, for sure. I um I had another guest on the show, like I think three weeks ago. His name's Justin Blau. He's a DJ, but he's an independent artist, and you know, he he studied finance undergraduate, and so I think went into the music industry with an understanding of how these agreements work, and was like. You know, in, in this day and age, the thing is, you know, your fans become both your distribution and your potential to monetize directly. And so if you can, if you have a credible name or you've done works in the past, you can go direct to your audience now and, you know, and raise, you know, raise on a platform like Kickstarter or something like that. There may even be film specific. And then they also will promote it for you because they're, they're super fans, you know, and that's, that's one of the interesting things that I think is starting to play out is as people get kind of bored of the centralized platforms. There's also this direct to the viewer relationship that filmmakers can start to build, um, which is really cool. And I think for future films like yours, it's something definitely to uh, to consider. I agree. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we we kind of bobbed and weaved. And, and I enjoyed it. Thank you. That was, that was very interesting. Likewise, likewise. Um, Ending Disease comes out in three days. Anything else you want to share with with the listeners? Well, if you could say that they can go to uh, www.endingdisease.com to purchase a ticket, that would be yes. great. Excellent. www.endingdisease.com. We'll put we'll put the link in the show notes for everyone um, to go check it out. Uh, it's exciting, and it's like you know, I'm groundbreaking technology uh, that could change our lives for the better. So it's world changing, and and it'll happen in. Within a decade or so, these will be available. Now so that means we're we're going to live forever. <laughs> you know, these things are about diseases, um, you know, but there are also things that are being uh, worked on that were not also not in clinical trial that affect uh, the length of of life for people. Um, so that is not in 
in any trial yet. I only followed things that were in clinical trials, FDA-approved clinical trials. And there are things that are, affect, you know, the lifespan of the human being that, that are being developed too. Super cool. Yeah, I was, I was actually, I, I wanted to ask uh, earlier and I forgot, but you just reminded me, like, what was one, one thing that you wish you could have included in the film, but you just, you know, had to cut it because of time or, you know, or, or just, it was already such a broad scope? Well, so uh, I made this film and I thought I was making a one of documentary, which is an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes. And I had worked with these families for a year on, on each of the trial. I mean, many of them overlapped with each other, but I spent a year with most of these people following the time that they came in and had all these problems through the time that the trial was over. And then sometimes I wanted to stay with them a little longer to see you know, whether the cancer came back or whatever the situation was, whether it continued to improve. And so I had to make a decision. Am I going to make a one-off documentary or am I going to make a four-part series? So I decided that I was not going to leave these important moments in these families' lives. And, you know, I could have cut it to this, the big emotional moments, and it'd be like um, bullet points in an hour and a half film. But I just wanted to show the nuance of their lives and what they were going through and how they related to each other and how important it was uh, for them and their families. And so I ended up including most of the really great moments mm. and making a four-part series. And, uh, you know, some people have said I, you know, I had an easier time selling this or whatever if it was a one-up. Um, but uh, yeah, like, you know, you, you cut, chop it up in that format, right, for the tint for the tint of the platform. There's so much good stuff in these people's stories and just including their kids and the relationship with, with everybody. And, and the doctors, you know, the, the doctors and scientists had worked on their, their cure for 20 years before they got the okay to do this clinical trial. So it's not like they just came up with this and let, sent it off to the FDA. Most of these scientists have been working on it for 15, 20 years sometimes more. And then they got the okay to actually try it out on patients in a hospital setting and see if it actually worked. Mm. So I wanted to show that as well, what they had at stake. There's a lot, there's a lot in here and it's super cool. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you for Thanks coming for on. Thanks for having me, Mark. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one -on -one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. -E or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, 
And I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.